This is Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid in the Web Yeshiva with another edition of our Atid Jewish Educators Book Club. This past summer, a new family moved into my community. It's one of those families that everybody else finds so annoying because their children are so darn nice. When the eldest son of this family had his bar mitzvah a few weeks ago, people were heard to comment at the Kiddush afterwards, I wish my kid would turn out like that boy. To which someone said, well, that's the tricky thing. If you want to have a child like the bar mitzvah boy, you need to be parents like the Kislewitzes. And our guest today is Rabbi Dr. Barry Kislewitz, of late, the principal of the Fuchs Mizrahi School in Cleveland, but recently joined us here in Eretz Yisrael, when he and his family, the folks I talked about in that story, uh, arrived on, on Aliyah. And he is working now in a very special project at the Center for Educational Technology in Tel Aviv, uh, which is something that people might want, to, uh, might want to check out by Googling it for their variety of very interesting educational projects. But we're here to talk about his recent book, Parenting in Perspective, Timeless Wisdom, Modern Applications, recently published by Magid Books here in Jerusalem. Uh, it's one of those books that you're, you're walking through the Svarim store, and you see the title, and you say, gee, I could really use that, or at least if you're a, a parent, or thinking about becoming a parent one day, because all of us, good parents, bad parents, indifferent parents, most of us hopefully fall, at least in the middle. Uh, we're all hopeful. We're all looking. We're all searching. We're all questioning. We're all wondering how can we become better at what clearly is the very most important task we've been put on this planet to accomplish. And that is to, if we are so blessed, to parent our children. So, in one sentence, Barry, what's the secret? In one sentence, <laughs> the secret is much longer than one sentence. <laughs> Which is why you had to write a whole book. <laughs> uh, but the truth is, for me, it all comes down to the perspective we take to our parenting. While we all want to be good parents, for many of us, we don't have the time or energy to really think deeply about how we relate to our kids. We have so many intense emotions around our children that it's often those emotions that guide us and we don't push ourselves to take a perspective which really puts our kids and not our own emotional needs at the center of our parenting. Right, so this is this idea of child-centered education or child-centered parenting is something that many of our listeners will be familiar with in their work in education or their work with schools, which have really, I think, in the last number of years adopted this uh, with, with two hands, the idea of putting the child-centered as somebody who's been on both sides, as an educator, uh, first in the classroom and then in the uh, in the administrator's office, and of course from the perspective as a parent, what are some of the essential differences between child-centered parenting and child-centered educating? Are they the same, just one plays out at home and one plays out at school, or are there really essential differences? I think the the central kernel is the same in both efforts, but they're often not applied in the same way, and in many ways, I took 
educational theory and applied it to parenting, but once I'd done so, what I learned from the effort informed my work as an educator as well. Child-centered education often boils down to the kids being more active in the classroom than the teacher is. It's not the sage on the stage, it's the guide on the side, it's work groups, it's project-based learning, it's all of these pieces, which are wonderful and essential, but what I found we often miss as educators, which I learned from the process of writing this book, is how much child-centered education is really about learning each individual child and attempting to see the growth process from their perspective, and then laying out the path and laying out the experiences so that the child will be able to gain and be enriched and grow from their own experiences rather than from us guiding them along. And it's the book uh, uses this clever heuristic of organizing the discussion around these two uh, 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 typological uh, families, the Abrams and the Steins. Abrams are, well, those kinds of parents that we all aspire to be, and I guess we all kind of secretly resent when we meet them in our own lives and know that we don't measure up. Um, and their children, of course, all come out like, like little angels, little high priests. And the Steins, who, interestingly, are not bad parents. You didn't set it up as a kind of straw man. Uh, uh, you know, the good parents where everything is perfect and everything is shiny and everything is kind and polite and sweet and dedicated and committed and, you know, the family of drug addicts and spouse abusers and and uh, and uh, child delinquents. The Steins themselves are upstanding members of the kind of hypothetical modern Orthodox Jewish community, uh, American Jewish community, that you paint and set them in uh, for each chapter of the book. Um, they go to synagogue. They, with great sacrifice, like so many other parents, send their children to fine day school. They encourage them to participate in extracurricular activities. They support their academic needs and efforts. They provide for their family. There's, on, on the surface, there's really... There's really nothing we could look at. They, these are people, the Steins are people, would be honored at the shul or school dinner. Um, but tell us, tell, tell us what's, what are they lacking in terms of why do they fall out on the other end of the spectrum that you've painted? I mean, admitting that there are people that are far, far, far behind them, but you're talking about, you're painting a picture of parenting within the norms, not right. within the abnormal. Right. I, I did not write this book for the drug addict down the street. Uh, living in Beechwood, Ohio, as I was writing, there were no drug addicts <laughs> down the street. There are only nice modern Orthodox Jewish families, families down the street. Um, the Steins, to me, represent some of the deep contradictions within American modern Orthodox life. They're the type of family, as you said, that would be honored at the shul dinner. But there's something that's missing. And in the book, I try and distinguish between what I call surface values and deep values. Right. The signs say all the right things. They do all the right things. Uh, it's maybe best characterized by one of the anecdotes I uh, included that Dr. Stein is off to Shul Shabbos morning, and he's going to be there on time every Shabbos morning. And his son will be in tow with him. And his son will be in tow, but he's not happy to go. Right. He, he wishes he could spend that extra hour lingering over the coffee and the paper. He's not enjoying the religious experience. He is committed to it, 
but he doesn't deeply understand it. He's not enriched by it. And the thing about kids is that they see through that sort of surface value to what's really important. Right. What's really important to Dr. Stein is that his son get into medical school, be successful by professional standards, not that his son grow spiritually and religiously. And again, there's a fine distinction here because Dr. Stein is a wonderful individual, but it's that last 2 or 3%, which is often what our kids feel and sense more deeply than anyone else in our lives. Right, so here, it's, it's interesting that you picked up, that's precisely the, the uh, page that I had dog-eared uh, to refer to, and you paint this, that assume for a moment that Dr. Stein falls out on the lesser side, uh, gets the shorter end of the stick, uh, measures up less favorably on, on any of these questions that you've been discussing early in the chapter. He's acting appropriately and demonstrating commitment, but his inner state may not be aligned with the external demonstration. As far as his own mitzvah performance is concerned, we may be willing to give Dan a pass. After all, Talmud often tells us that doing a mitzvah for the wrong reasons is praiseworthy, as it will ultimately lead to the fulfillment for the right reasons. But then you outline, quoting the Gemara in Brachot, that tocho uh, eno kevaro, that there's a misalignment between there's a misalignment between between his 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 inner state and his external observance, his external demonstration. But we should say it's not the kind of hypocrisy of a father that tells his kid you should daven mincha on a Sunday afternoon, but yet doesn't demonstrate the behavior himself, or tells his kid you shouldn't speak with nivel peh, with profanity, but yet will let a, uh, 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 an acidic barb uh, uh, of trash talk exit his own mouth. That's not what we're talking about. Here we're talking about somebody that's trying to educate his child, his son, his daughter, to religious commitment and religious excitement to have a religiously engaged, awake, uh, uh, charged Jewish life, and yet he is somehow just going through the motions. Although we should stipulate that he goes through all the motions, which itself is halavai, all of our community members should get to shul on time every Shabbat morning. Uh, but that sense of of taking it a step further, the difference, the value added between being a Stein and an Abram is the degree to which you can bring the inner and the external aligned. So, you, your sense is that the kids will always pick up on this. Yes. That you can't fake it. That if it's not sincere, you'll never be able to pass it over. But what's the advice to the parent? In other words, to some degree, this is not so much a book about good parenting as much as it is a, a kind of self-help book. You want to be a good parent? Become a better person yourself. Become a better Jew yourself. And if you're a better person, if you're a better Jew, that will naturally translate to, to better being better role models, being better parents, setting a better example. So really, that's quite difficult. People pick up a parenting book because they think, you know, uh, and, and I, I, I encourage sales of the book, but, you know, certainly people pick it up thinking, oh, there's, a, there's probably, they skimmed the back, you know, for the 
the ten bullet points of, you know, these are, the, these are the tricks you didn't know. And, of course, there are no such tricks. But how do we do that? How do you communicate? How do you, and here you're moving in your role from, and, and the book, I think, does this rather, rather elegantly. Uh, as you move from your role from a parent speaking, you know, principally through the voice of, you know, I'm a parent and, and I think I might have some wisdom to share with other parents, to your role as an educator in a community where you are tasked with working with parents, sometimes subterraneously. Uh, parents don't send their children to school with the assumption that the school and the school leadership is there also to educate the parents as well. That's not what they're necessarily paying their tuition for. But that is one of the roles of a school in a, in a community. How do you do that? What are your thoughts on that? So I think that you're picking up on exactly the, the key point of the book. There, I would say about half the book is about how you relate to your children. But relating to your children in the most wonderful way is useless if you haven't thought about who you are yourself. Mm -hmm. um, it goes back to advice that I got, which uh, before getting married, I went to my Rebbe at the time and said, you know, I'm, I'm getting married, I'm having kids, what do I do, what, how do I prepare for this? Uh, and he said, you know, it, just do what you should be doing anyway. Right? There, there is no secret to being a good parent. It's all those same principles and values about being a good person. But what is useful about being a parent is that it can provide us with a, a motivation and inspiration. We're all willing to do things for our kids that we would never do for ourselves. Right? We're all willing to push ourselves for the sake of our children and invest in them. And that's true for the Steins and the Abrams. And the Steins are good people, uh, it would have been way too easy to create, uh, you know, a negative Steins who never go to show and are total hypocrites. Those people exist, but the added value is, is the thoughtfulness. Uh, and thinking about how our children see us can be some of the most useful mirroring that can illuminate where we might fall short, where we might want to improve ourselves. Uh, for me, this became the most clear one of my first years as a principal when six of the boys in my class decided they were going to dress up like me for Purim. <laughs> and it was, it was very cute. They were very kind about it. And they nailed it to the last detail to how my seat seat were wrapped around my belt in ways that I was shocked that they even Picked noticed. But they noticed every last little detail about how I acted and what I did and how I walked down the hallway. And when we think about that ourselves, we all have those same memories of our parents. We know when our parents drank coffee in the morning. We know how they looked when they got up. And if we see our kids watching us in this way, that can give us the, the ability to push ourselves. One of the metaphors I use in the book is, is that of a rubber band. Um, or an elastic, depending on what country you come from. Um, we all have our tendency to, to go back to our way of doing our things. Our default. Our default setting. And part of this book is saying stretch ourselves. And you always snap back. But never exactly to the same. Exactly. And, and keep stretching. Keep saying, okay, well, if I was going to be the perfect role model for my child, what would I be? 
and how can I push myself and how can I try and grow there knowing that somebody's watching me and learning from me. Right. We all operate under this uh, illusion that we as parents, you know, you know, if we do it right, we mold our children and we, uh, you know, uh, produce them not in a cookie-cutter way, but I was recently, uh, you know, I'm no longer school-age. I was recently uh, with my parents, my own parents, uh, and uh, we were in a restaurant, and I ordered something, a little, uh, I should say, like a little exotic, not the typical fare. My mother looked at me with wonder and said, where in the world did you develop a taste for that? I never served that. <laughs> now, my mother is unaware of the fact that from the time, I mean, she's aware cognizantly, but cognitively, but emotionally, she's, she's unaware of the fact that, you know, in the 30 plus years uh, since I graduated high school, uh, I, I haven't spent, you know, more than five consecutive nights under the same roof with her. And I've had other experiences in the two-thirds of my life that have come after that. And there have been all types of influences on my tastes and my attitudes and my beliefs and my lifestyle and etc. And although, of course, my parents were foundational in everything I did, I thought it was amusing that, you know, she she still operates under this cognitive dissonance that, you know, everything came from the imprint of the house in which I, I grew up on. Where would I possibly have developed a taste for goose? <laughs> you know, something that was never on the menu in the Sachs household. <laughs> As if I never ate anywhere else. So we operated. But of course, we're all conscious of the fact that we make decisions all the time. And from the moment the child is born, there are all types of outside influences that we can't control, that we can't even always neutralize when we would want to. Uh, peer group and school and community and neighborhood and synagogue and summer camp and experiences after uh, people uh, children leave our home and go off for the American students come off to study here in, in Eretz Israel, go off to university marry, etc, etc, etc etc. The book also of course relates to this because we're not naive to think that we are the, although we're the first and primary and most important but what you know, what do parents do? It's not enough to say, you know, the Steins and the Abrams have two different summer camps that the children in their community go to, and one is going to more foster uh, the values of the home, and one is going to, at best, be neutral and at worst, undermine it. So you should send to the camp that advances the uh, the um, the values of the home, something that's, uh, you know, I'm cognizant of the fact that you're from from Cleveland, which is, uh, you know, in many ways a model community for, for all of these things. Uh, but even the, even the preferable summer camp uh, is not without influences that we would prefer not to expose our children to, because that's what happens. Once you let them out of the, the hermetic seal, uh, how do you navigate that? Even when making, even when the Abrams make the right choice. Presumably the Steins and the Abrams would both have sent their kids to the same summer camp. But how do you try to stack the deck so that the outside influences are reinforcing? Absolutely. So I, I think there, there's two pieces to this. One is uh, what we can plan for and one is what we have to let go. There is an element of planning. Uh, and I, Towards the end of the book I talk about how the Abrams saw 
the previous generation of Abrams before them and pay close attention to the sorts of things like what camp and what youth groups the kids go to, but not just what camp they go to. Because, again, that's, that's a service label. My kid goes to school X. My kid goes to camp X. When often the more important factor is which other children within that framework of camp X or school X are they befriending? And how can you set them up in advance to gravitate towards the kind of children that are going to be reinforcing them? And maybe that's the sort of youth group they participated when they're young, not because the youth group's great for when they're young, but, but because you've seen that the kids who grew up to be counselors in that youth group have a wonderful experience, and you're planning 10 years ahead. That's often what we don't do as parents, is understand the end of the path that we put our children on by doing little things today. And the same is true of camps. We're going to send you to camp. What kind of toys are we sending you with? What kind of messaging are we sending you with? How are we framing it for you? Um, and how are we preparing it? Preparing you for it and, and picking up on it? Well, there's some kids that go to wonderful camps and run away from the dancing on Shabbat. They're the kids jumping out the windows of the Chadarochel, of the dining hall. Anything but dancing. Why are some kids doing that and other kids in the midst of the fray? What messaging and what experiences did those kids have at home? If we're singing around the Shabbat table with our children, they're going to be much more likely to participate in that kind of dancing, and we're priming them for that experience. The other half is an acknowledgement, and this is, I think, a, a too often quoted pasuk of Hanoch Lanar al Pidarko, raise a child up upon their way. To me, what's often missed in that pasuk is when they go on their way, they're going without us. We're not there holding their hand. They're walking and going on their way. What we need to do is focus not on guiding all the decisions, but on equipping them with the values and the, the decision-making capacity so that, that when they're out there on their own in all of these experiences, we'll be pleased with the decisions they're making because they're in line with our deep values. So I think we should, uh, we should stipulate... Uh, uh, singing on Shabbat and dancing at summer camp are positive, you know, uh, religious emotional experiences. But I think it's important to also point out that, you know, a kid who doesn't like to dance isn't a bad kid. Absolutely. Necessarily. Absolutely. And a kid who does like to dance isn't necessarily a good kid. Right. And uh, these kinds of uh, images of, like, what we want, you know, like at the Chagiga on Rosh Chodesh in school, we want all the kids dancing in the gym. Right. Uh, there are other... Social values, there are the religious values, there are the personal choices right. that are that don't necessarily read a child out of the right. out of the uh, the main right. the um, the uh, uh, when when we moved into town quite a number of years ago, our eldest child was only five years old, and uh, in those days there were uh, you know a number of elementary school options and a number of high school options in the years since options have grown, um, but. Uh, Whenever we would encounter, uh, you know, teenagers or high school-aged kids, a babysitter, a kid that would come to the door to sell flowers, you know, uh, you know, somebody you bump into in the supermarket, whatever it is, I would always be curious. I would always ask, where do they go to high school? Uh, which high school do they go to? And my son, who was then five, six, seven, eight years old, asked me, why do you always ask these kids which school do they go to? And I explained to him because I'm already now 
seven and eight years in advance deciding where you're going to go to high school. Because I'm looking to see what do the boys that come out of this school, how do they act? How do they interact with adults? How do they present themselves? How do they comport themselves for good or for bad? And that's one of the factors that will go into the decision that we'll make together about which school you should go to. And at the time, I'm not sure he he understood <laughs> what I was getting at. Now that he's a high school graduate, I, I should check to see if uh, now he understands you know, how those decisions got made and factoring that in so it plays into what you said a minute ago. One of the, um, say, I guess the methodological points in the book is you draw on a wide uh, bibliography of books in educational theory, in psychology, in parenting, in social studies, things I imagine that you encountered and found useful you know, in your own work, probably going all the way back to your graduate studies uh, for your doctorate in education. Um, the, by, de- by definition, and I don't say this as a critique, by definition, you know, this uh, work that draws widely on, on a kind of uh, professional bibliography is going to be um, uh, portraiture. It's going to be snap, you know, snapshots of, of different things that you're culling because this author made a good point. That study uh, reinforces what you, what it is that you're getting at. You're not doing you're not meant to do the work of uh, an analysis of that literature. Um, but how do you know? For the, for the general reader who, who's unfamiliar with, with that, uh, with that uh, bookshelf, how do you know when you, you know, read widely in these, in these fields that this is a piece of wisdom, this is a piece of research, this is a point of data that is going to be well integrated with our Jewish worldview on parenting and teaching. Not everything is going to be. Is it a is it a, as a gut sense? Is it a more intuitive, or is there a kind of guiding guiding um, philosophy or methodology in how you integrated material from the general literature into a book on Jewish parenting? Uh, I think that's a great question. It happens to be the the key question that guided my doctoral thesis, mm. uh, which was focused on a particular piece of educational theory from the general world and asked the question, what happens when we bring this into Jewish education and what perhaps unanticipated consequences are there of making that translation? What I came to in, in that work, which guides me uh, you know, in putting together this book and deciding what to draw on as well, is that we have to be very aware of not only the practical recommendations that come out of a specific work, but also the underlying philosophy. This author, when they're writing whatever study or whatever work they're putting together, where do they hope kids will end up in the end? What kind of kids are they trying to grow and are they trying to develop? Um, And what are those key values that guide their work? If those values align with our values and they're they're fundamentally about development, about growth, about um, continuity and and value-driven education, then it's an easy translation. If the values are less about that, if they're more about kids behaving nicely on the one hand, or more about creating disruption and changing the way culture works. On the other hand, 
uh, then we have to be much more careful about looking at, well, how is this work being driven and where are these kind of techniques and these kind of approaches really going to lead our kids? As nicely and as, as shiny as the book cover may be, um, we have to be very clear about what the underlying philosophy is. Mm-hmm. Well, parenting and education are both inherently very conservative uh, conservative acts. You know, To a certain degree, they are the two ways in which, hand in hand, a community fulfills its first responsibility, which is to replicate itself. And, uh, but but that said, the look. In other words, it's a parenting book, which plays out in the context of suburban American modern Orthodox families and communities. But if we were to strip it of all the examples, if we would sanitize the Steins and the Abrams uh, to some more generically sounding all-American names um, and take out the references to going to synagogue on Saturdays and instead replace it with, you know, going off to piano practice, something that children might also be dragged to kicking and screaming. Uh, We can imagine a parallel universe in which the book is written outside of the, with all the same chapter headings, Mm -hmm. written in in a kind of general context. But it's not not just because of your professional background and your personal interests and and your own identity. What is inherently Jewish about the underlying thesis of the the work, even were we to strip it of all the explicit Jewish context and references? How how is this philosophy of parenting uh, essentially the Jewish philosophy of parenting. Um, So it's a very interesting point, and I think that it's uh, a question that I often ask myself about how many explicitly Jewish sources are integrated into this book, and how many do I want to integrate, and how much does this read like a Judaic textbook versus a generalized parenting book? Please understand, my assumption is not that in other words, you'd need to have a lot of Gemaras and, and Midrashim and Psukim in order to make it a Jewish. Right. right? There, there's a set of guiding ideas. There's mm-hmm. a vision behind this book, your vision of what proper parenting is. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to have the window dressing of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a Pasuk or a Hasidic right. uh, adage uh, at, uh, as the pressy of each chapter in order to make it a Jewish book. Exactly. Right. In exactly. what way is this parenting philosophy an inherent Jewish so, philosophy, if, if at all? Um, so I believe it, it's both a Jewish and a general philosophy. Now, it's fundamentally Jewish philosophy because I think that it flows from Jewish values and ultimately the, the true mission of Jewish life. Uh, that mission, I think, can in some other ways be applied to general life, but it comes from Jewish life. Uh, The mission of of Jewish life, as I see it, is about growth and development as Ovdei Hashem. We we want to serve God, we want to become closer to God, and in order to do that, we are both uh, working on our own inner personalities, we're working on our spiritual development, we're in a constant process of growth and development towards achieving ideals, which the Torah sets for us, which are so lofty that we'll never achieve them, we'll only be in process and in growth towards them. 
Uh, and to me, that frames the idea of parenting as being about growth and being about recognizing the infinite value and the infinite capacity in each of our children, which means it's not about as another parenting book, which I, I saw once, Eight Weeks to a Well-Behaved Child. <laughs> uh, you know, I bought that book just so I could quote it for negative. If you could do it in eight weeks, you could do it in one. Right. And that book would sell even more. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But the, the Jewish philosophy that's at the heart of this is there's an infinite complexity to our, each of our children, an infinite value to each of our children, and we want them to serve the ideals of Judaism. We want them to serve God over the length of their lives. And in order to do that, we have to help them grow and unfold and see their own potential. Now, that could be translated into a general world. I happen to think that the values that we get from Torah learning, the deep involvement in learning, in prayer, in everything, all of the mitzvot that surround our life, reinforce that and create a framework in which that becomes much more apparent in Jewish life, particularly than it is in most cultures. Rabbi Dr. Barry Kislowitz the author of Parenting in Perspective, Timeless Wisdom, Modern Applications, an important new book for us as parents, for us as educators, from Magid Books in Jerusalem. Thank you.